What's going on, guys? Uh, thanks for joining us today. We're going to chat about body fat percentage and muscle gain. So um, I'm sitting down with Dr. Mike Isertel. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, most of you guys will probably know who he is, but for those of you who are just kind of new and tuning in, can you maybe give a little bit of a uh, background of yourself? Sure. Yeah, I'm a uh, sports science professor at Lehman College in the Bronx in New York through the internet. So I don't have to actually be in the Bronx, um, which is sad because it's a great place. Um, and I am a co-founder of Renaissance Periodization, which is a company that makes like digital products to help people get in shape. And uh, we have a YouTube channel, Renaissance Periodization, where I combine decent training and diet advice with absolutely terrible comedy in order to get people to try to learn things. I've written a bunch of books. I'm a competitive bodybuilder and a Brazilian jiu-jitsu brown belt, which is the same color as poop, which is how my jiu-jitsu feels most of the time. I didn't know you were brown. When did you get that? Uh, the summer, last summer. Oh, nice. That's dope. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of dive right into it. Essentially, there have been a couple of conversations going on lately about uh, like P ratios and different things like that. And I think that that's really interesting, but I guess I'm more interested with like the practical side of things, because I do think that was kind of a big part of your conversation that you had in, in your kind of opening monologue on who's the round, the round table, Jeff, Jeff Nippert's round table. Um, and so I kind of wanted to talk and, and like, I guess, explore some of those things that you mentioned as well. So I guess to start off, like, is there a benefit to having a higher body fat percentage when gaining muscle higher than what uh well i guess sorry that would be the second question is like what what would that range be and and is there a range where it wouldn't confer any particular benefit and i guess it's more of like an open-ended question for you to kind of explore on your own sure. sure sure of course uh so i think that um i'll just speak about males and females can just add uh, eight to ten percent body fat depending on the sort of interpretation of the literature you prefer uh so for males it's um, from a combination of direct research evidence, which is limited in scope, but because it's formally conducted, can elucidate a, a bit better sometimes than just observation. A combination of that research evidence and the observation of, gee, a, a giant majority of coaches and bodybuilders that at least I've had contact with. Um, anything under around 10% body fat for males is um, such a, a, a state of such poor hormonal balance and poor fatigue dynamics that it's probably not unwise to try to build a whole lot of muscle while staying under 10% body fat. Uh, sorry, Instagram influencers, <laughs> uh, it's bad news for, for that. But, um, and so anywhere between 10% and I would say probably 20% is a really great range to build muscle. And then north of 20% body fat for males, 30% for females, roughly, you start to have some open questions as to is it a good idea to continue to add body fat? And there are some upsides and there are some downsides and those can be sort of explored in their own due time. So I, I define the range um, of 5% to 20% as definitely not great between five and 10, probably really good between 10 and 15, probably really good between 15 and 20, though the first couple of, do I really wanna get beyond 15% body fat questions come up north of 20, 20 to 25, it's still great uh, from most perspectives, but more questions come up. Is Do I really want to continue to be this fat and get fatter? North of 25%, the questions about body fatness continuing get more uh, pervasive and get difficult, become incrementally more difficult to answer the affirmative. So should I continue to gain when you're at 27% body fat is something that I have said yes to in, in the past. And it led to some good things and some not great things. And definitely, I can't say if it was beneficial on the net balance. So there's, a, and, and I can get very specific on, on what those things are. Uh, but generally speaking, so to answer your question more directly, is it beneficial to have higher body fat uh, in order to gain muscle? If you're under 10% fat, almost certainly yes. If you're over 15% fat, probably not. Probably not uh, beneficial uh, by itself. But there could be some uh, factors like momentum, for example, uh, that weigh in to say, yes, actually, when I'm 16% body fat, I should still keep gaining. But as you ask that question again at 20%, 25%, 30 the column of pros and cons start to shift much more into the cons. 
Yeah. So that, that was one thing that I found kind of interesting as well. Cause like, I know a lot of people that I know who were like huge at one point were just like, they kind of hit a ceiling and this is obviously just anecdotal. They hit a ceiling where it was like, they just struggled to gain more weight. And then they were like, fuck it. And they just kind of ate whatever, put on a bunch of weight. And then they stopped struggling to gain weight after that they had to lean out, but getting beyond that kind of point, I think psychologically was a big barrier. And I think that for me anyways, I kind of did that like quote unquote dirty bulk thing where I just put on a bunch of weight really quickly. And, you know, was it productive in the long run? I don't know. It's hard. Like, I I would say probably not from like a a physique standpoint, but then mentally to be able to kind of overcome those barriers. And so it's kind of one of those things that like, I I don't know, what's your perspective on that? I think it's a good idea to, when you're working on mental things, to try to see if you can work on them in a purely mental environment before you try to alter your physical environment to make your mentality better. So to use a non-bodybuilding example, if you have a neighbor that like every other day when you're like leaving to go to work, he like annoyingly yells, hey, hey, Daniel, how are you? You're okay, fine. You're fucking annoying. Probably the second thing you want to do is be like, hey, come here, come here. Shut the fuck up. Don't ever talk to me again. I hate you. You're annoying. <laughs> second place. And first place is working inside your own head, not trying to alter the external environment. It's like, you know what? I'm just going to be okay you know, Bill, the neighbor's really jolly and that's fine. And even when I'm not having my best day, Wusam and let that shit flow through me, karmic energy, you know, in and out, I'm good. I don't have to fight the guy or tell him to go fuck himself. Generally speaking, that, that, that second option, uh, or, or rather the one where you just deal with it in your own head is probably better than altering the physical environment because you know, there's some downsides there. Um, and the, see, the benefit is still the same. If you win the mental battle, you won. Uh, you can win the mental battle by telling them to shut up. And then the environment changes such that, you know, you don't have to win the mental battle. But then, like, you know, there's problems that occur. He, he could have a gun on him at, at the very time and be like, oh, tell me to shut up. Well, you know, that's the, probably the worst case scenario. <laughs> or he just turns into a person that is kind of a bad seed in your life. And, you know, when you turn your music up just a little loud, he calls the police. You know, you don't want anything like that in your life, right? So the analogy there is like, okay, if, if you need a psychological help, and believing that you can weigh more than 275 pounds, you can do one of two things, potentially. You can dirty bulk uh, to 280, 290, and be like, oh, sweet, I did it. There's no mystical energy about 275 that is, uh, makes it unbreakable. Or you can just stay in your own head for a few minutes and be like, okay, thermodynamics works in, in a not very complicated way. And if I just continue to present a progressively increased, mostly clean calories and train very hard, I have to break 270 at some point, and it just has to happen. There's no way somebody eats, eats 5,600 calories a day every day of mostly clean food and doesn't eventually break 270. It just doesn't fucking happen. It just as an example, right? So if you deal with it in your own head and you solve that problem in your own head, you say, you know what? Fuck mentally. I, I ain't a little bitch. I'm just going to bust through this with clean eating. I don't need cookies and pizza to mentally help me get through a certain weight. And if I'm at 274.9 for fucking six months, I don't care. I'll do whatever it takes. That's probably not going to happen. But if you prepare yourself for that and say, I'm going to do the grind no matter what, then solves the mental problem of you being intimidated of not being able to gain, but it doesn't affect your physique in a negative way, your health in a negative way, your training performance in a negative way, as the pizza and cookies diet will. So my best recommendation is to solve the mental shit up here and then leave the physical shit to just being as much machine-like as possible. It's kind of similar to to guys being like worried about like, man, I, I get really intimidated anytime like, you know, there's three plates on the bar, like... I should just train a little bit as a powerlifter sets of three or five, you know, it's context of bodybuilding where such repetitions are probably more injurious than you want to subject yourself to. Is that I got to get like, you know, three, three thirty on the bar for sets of three for a few weeks. And I'll be ready to do three plates for hypertrophy rep range five to 10. That's one way to go about it, but it presents the risk of you fucking hurting yourself to convince your brain of something, but you could also just like kind of not up and be like, I don't care what's on the bar. I'm just going to push as hard as I can. And then eventually you're like, oh shit, I'm doing 335. So it's, hey, great. Like you can deal with intimidation and other mental factors, preferably mentally first, uh, without uh, sort of taking physical costs. And uh, real quick, while I'm on a rant, this happens in uh, sports a lot, uh, team sports. Athletes will misbehave in some way and the coaches will uh, punish them with running, for example. They do like sprints or endurance. It's something, the, the running is just simply to impart pain right? Just to punish the person. But the problem is the, the running fucks their bioenergetic systems such that, you know, let's say we have um, sprinters uh, and they're, they're supposed to have very low training volumes, very low muscular tenderness, uh, interference, joint structures, things like that. They're very fragile creatures. 
And you also want them to stay as fast, which as possible. So more training volume is bad. Fatigue as low as possible. More training volume is bad. So if your sprinters misbehave and you give them like, yeah, you got to run 10 laps. Like, yeah, they're fast, which they're going to hate it. They're going to throw up. They're going to be, it's going to be awful. It's going to be very effective punishment. But the problem is you're sacrificing the machine that is their body. The body's a performance machine, right? Like if your Ferrari doesn't do laps as fast as you want, you don't fucking hit it with a hammer. <laughs> it's not going to do anything. So, you know, maybe for athletes, and this is something that my colleague, Ashley Cavanaugh and I, who, who works at RP now, when we were coaching and sports scientists, strength coaches for volleyball, division one volleyball in the United States back in the day, um, we actually convinced us something our mentor, Dr. Stone, told us to do and work super well. We convinced them, the head volleyball coach, to, to go away from all physical punishment. So if the girls, the volleyball girls, they did something bad, they misbehaved, stayed out too late or didn't try hard enough or something, they never sprinted ever again, as long as Ashley and I were, were sports scientists. They had to do something much worse. They had to write like a five-page essay about what they did, why it was wrong, and how they were going to do better. They hated that so much more than sprinting. It was difficult to quantify, but it didn't impact their actual bodies. So what I would say to that whole dirty bulking thing, like, oh man, it's dirty bulking. I got to like do it psychologically. Like at least try psychologically to handle the shit on your head first and get it right before fucking up the rest of your body to do it. And by the way, I'm not trying to judge you for doing what you did. I did the exact same thing. Right? I was five, six, natural, 270. I was a fat motherfucker. And I just did it. So I was like, oh, I'm huge. But then like, you know, I still have like, uh, hate, like loose hanging skin from that shit and a whole other laundry list of problems. Yeah, I think for me, it was less about the, I mean, maybe that did impact my decision to do it. I mean, it was so long ago, but for me, it was just the the sheer difficulty of eating that much. Like, it was just so hard. And and so for me, like, I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to try and gain at whatever cost. Cause I, I was actually pretty lean. Like, I mean, I got up to 270 natural and I was, I was, I was fatter than I would have liked. But when I was about 230, I still had like a six pack and I was still pretty lean, but I'm also like 183 centimeters. So like a little bit taller, but um, yeah, for me, that was it. And I know a lot of people kind of run into the same issue but yeah i think that's interesting because the the that exercise i think would drive me crazy that would be very difficult to do and i think that's why a lot of people kind of like just bypass that and they're like ah fuck it and they kind of take the easy road which yeah no that that makes a lot of sense so from from a practical standpoint though i guess this kind of leads into to the next question from a practical standpoint like having a higher body fat percentage you know i know i was definitely over 20 percent for for a long time um, how does that practically influence adherence? Like both from like a biological standpoint and from like a, just, I guess, a behavioral standpoint in, in your experience. Adherence to diet or adherence to training? Uh, adherence to diet. Or both. We can definitely go into both for sure. Yeah. Generally speaking, if you look good, your motivation is just higher all around for training and for diet. Like it's pretty easy to look like decent have a big fucking chest and tricep pump and like get off the bench and like flex in the mirror. And you're like, fuck yeah, I want more, more of everything. Um, whereas if you like so fat, you can't even tell you lift anymore. You may be hitting mega PRs, but you're like, man, fuck this. I look like shit. I hate this. I just want to get leaner. So if you stay reasonably lean to the extent that you're not embarrassed internally, at least about your physique, I think that tends to be better for motivation. Um, in my experience. Yeah. What do you think? I fuck. I I'm like living, living proof of that myself. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. It wasn't until I, I didn't worry about that all that much. So I was just concerned with getting as strong as possible. And then it wasn't until I hired a coach where I, I only went from one eight or two eighty five to two seventy like five. And that was over, I think like, I don't know how long we've been working together. Some, something around like eight months or something like that. So it's really not a lot of change at all. Like on the scale, but when I looked at the photos, I was like, holy shit, like it was such a dramatic difference. And I definitely agree that uh, like I don't ever do shirtless pics. And I think that's just not a habit I've done because I have been lean for so long. So I just don't yeah, think about it. But like sometimes like I'll, you know, I'll weigh myself in the morning and then I see myself in the shower and I'm like, oh, shit. OK, like I can actually see my physique like coming along, which is which is pretty crazy. And so, yeah, it definitely does motivate you to kind of keep going for sure. Um, and I mean, I also found that it was really hard to even evaluate any progress, whether I was like, you know, oh. if I was gaining weight. I'm like, am I getting, am I getting bigger or am I just getting bigger? 
<laughs> you know? So, so that, that was kind of an obstacle in itself. Like, you know, cause at one point I was probably about 24% body fat. And at that point it was just like, if I gain weight, I'm like, I don't know if I've put on any muscle or if I'm just fatter. Like it's really, really hard to tell objectively where, um, where I was actually heading. Yeah, for sure. And especially for bodybuilders that have pretty long off season, yeah. pace to stay a little leaner. So from a motivational and feedback perspective, you can look at your body and be like, wow, my quads are really growing. They're just fucking big. Whereas if you get really fat, you're like, hey, gee whiz, I, I sure hope my quads grew. My weights and reps are much higher, but hopefully that visually is somehow reflected. And it's not just all like, oh, I, my, my glutes got big and my adductors got big and that allowed me to squat more and like press more and everything. So my quads didn't actually get bigger. I don't know because I'm so fat, I can't tell. And then you diet all the way down to a show or mini cut or something and either discover like, wow, I really did get much bigger. Or you discover like, oh, shit, I didn't get much bigger at all. But if you stay relatively lean, if halfway through that mass gaining process, your quads don't look visibly much bigger, you could be like, man, am I really training my quads properly or do I have to sort of take a, a, a good dive at it? I guess a short way of saying that is like a high degree of body fat creates like a high level of opacity to what you're doing. It makes, makes you more opaque to what the fuck's going on. Uh, and then you just have to take much longer time to reevaluate, which, you know, is its own downside. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that's actually like, you bring up a really interesting point with, with the bodybuilders because bodybuilders will always talk about how like they get fat during the off season, but then you see a bodybuilder in the off season. And that's like, that's like my ideal physique, you know, fat <laughs> so, like veins and abs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think a lot of people kind of have a little bit of a skewed um idea or like their their connotation of of fat is very different than a bodybuilder's and so like what might that range be like for uh, a competitor you know in 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 season and then coming into the off season like uh, what ranges of body fat would they kind of tend for, to bo for bodybuilding competitors yeah so i think uh you know for again for males um you also have to ask another question is like how far away am I from stepping on stage as far as diet length and diet misery? So even if you have an ultra productive off season and, and let's say under the hood, you gain a shitload of muscle, but you're now 20% fat. You step on stage at roughly 5% fat, roughly. So oh, gee was 15% body fat. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a lot. That's a lot to lose. And if you weigh 250 pounds, well, it's like, that's like 40 pounds of fat tissue. You know, if, if that's 20 week diet, that's two pounds of fat per week, which is an absolute maximum speed limit in most cases for how fast you should be losing fat as a competitor anyway. At 20 weeks is a brutal fucking diet. So if you just run the numbers, it seems to point to the fact that if you can keep your body fat under 15% as a competitor, it's probably just a really good idea because then 15% to 5% is just 10%. And then, you know, if, you know, 10% fat, yeah, it's going to be a tough diet, but it's not the end of the world compared to 15%. It's such a big difference, especially considering the fact that the longer the diet goes, the, to some degree, a low exponent applies to how difficult it is. Like it, it, it doesn't get like this much more difficult, but it definitely starts eking up. So if you can take a diet and uh, take it from 20 weeks because you were 20% fat down to like 13 weeks, long because you start out at 15% fat, it just makes everything better. And another thing is like, okay, if you start, if you finish your bodybuilding show at 5% and then after you've done a little bit of recomping and, or sorry, recomping, like basically recomping in the other direction where you gain some body fat, a little bit of muscle mass post-show. Uh, let's say you start at, you know, eight to 10% on your actual off-season gaining phase, eight to 10% body fat, which is very reasonable. By going slow, it takes months to get to 15%. And then all you have to do is mini cut for like four weeks and you're back to 12%. And you have three more percent to gain for another, gee, eight to 12 week mass phase. Because I think the paranoia there is, okay, if I'm only going from 10% to 15% body fat, that's just not a lot of weight for me to gain unless I can't gain much muscle. It's a lot. It's a lot. Especially if you mini cut somewhere between there. And then it's really a lot. So uh, yeah, will you gain more muscle going all the way up to 20? Sure. But then you have to deal with the fucking problems that that brings. And competitive bodybuilders as a group almost never do that, especially the good ones, because most of them either have good coaches that tell them not to do that, or they're, well, third group I didn't consider until just now, they have body dysmorphia and are, are uninterested 
in getting fat, which has its downsides as well. But I think a lot of them have been real fat before in the off season and they had to do that like crusher 34 week diet to get on stage. And they just permanently were like, fuck that. And I think another thing they might've noticed is that north of 15% all the way to 20%, you still gain muscle, your lifts still go up, but you're getting to a, a level of fatness, which you find two problems with mm, three. One, it is displeasing to look at and is bad for motivation. <laughs> Two, it actually it starts to impact your physical ability to train. Your lower back pumps, you being out of breath for high reps, especially on compound movements. In north of 15%, high rep squats, this just don't happen anymore because you're like breathing heavy for 10 minutes, vomiting for nine of those minutes. And then you're like, what the fuck am I even doing here? Uh, and lastly, especially for bodybuilders, especially, especially, especially for bodybuilders that are enhanced, uh, 15 to 20% um, translation from 15 to 20% that occurs over several months takes an incrementally larger toll on your health than you would like it to. And if you are going to be enhanced, probably one of the healthiest thing you can do for yourself either way is to be lean. If you're going to be enhanced, staying lean is a huge, huge, huge bulwark to very bad health outcomes that occur. If you're getting over fat, not, not to put too fine a point on it or to call out anybody. I'm not in the realm of fame to call this person out anyway. It's pretty probably agree with me. I think of like a Eddie Hall bulking from 380 to 420. <laughs> like the, you know, on drugs, what his blood work like? I don't know. I don't want to see. I don't, I don't want to see that shit. So, you know, for strong men, he had to do what he had to do. But for bodybuilding, he'd probably be the first person to be like, dude, I would never get above 360 because that, that's insane. I would lose all my abs and my blood work would go straight to shit. My training would go straight to shit for higher reps and it would just be awful. So I would say that, you know, yeah, 15% is uh, my rough figure for most competitive bodybuilders above which I, I would instruct them not to go. And as always in scientifically minded training and diet, the conversation does not end there. It begins there. So I say I have 15%. And then the client or whatever uh, person I'm consulting can say, well, you know, here are some caveats and here are some special cases. And we could say, oh, okay, in your case, 13%, or in your case, 15, or in your case, 17, right? So it's, it's a fungible quantity there. 15 is not some kind of dogmatic thing. Like as soon as I hit 14.999, like fucking done, bro. But, you know, I'll tell you this. If someone's like, hey, I'm going to bulk to 20% and I'm a competitive bodybuilder, at the very least, I have a few questions for them to ask them if they have considered a few of the downsides. And if they have, and they're cool with it, it makes sense in the context of their plan. Awesome. They have my blessing. But a lot of times, if you do say those things back, like, well, what do you think, what do you think your strength endurance is going to do? What do you think your health is going to do? What do you think your appearance is going to look like psychologically? And be like, oh shit, I didn't really th think about that. All I thought about was how fucking big and strong I'm going to get. Like, okay, we'll think about those other things. Okay. Well, fuck that. I'm just going to stop at 50. So that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. I think the, the, the work capacity and how it impacts training and just everyday life. That was definitely one of those things that I think a lot of people really underplay when, when they're looking at like getting big. I know for me, like walking, I would get the craziest back pump and then I'd have to stop and I like wouldn't be able to walk because I'd have to chill for like 30 minutes for it to calm down. And then I'd go to walk again, but it would cramp up even faster this time. So it was like my step count was harder to get in. And yes. Like, like you were saying, like any sort of bent over rows, were like a no-go for me, basically, especially if it's after squats or deadlift, my low back would be so jacked up. Every back exercise would either have to be like a lat pull down or chest supported. And even then I would still kind of cramp up. And so it, was, oh, yeah. it really did impact my training. And so it's like my output went down, my step count went down. And then even like, I, so I started- It's real bad for your health, by the way. Step count goes bad. That's yeah. real bad. Yeah, hundred percent. I just felt like shit all the time. Like I was breathing heavy. And all this stuff. And so it wasn't until I was like, okay, I got to really like focus on getting leaner. And then I went back to boxing maybe like three months ago again. And at first, like 30 seconds of punching, like I was done. I was awesome. done. Yeah. And so it took me like a couple of months, just literally just going through the basic motions of getting back into it before I was able to actually do that. But that was after I got a lot leaner as well, which oh, like, yeah, which, which like, there's no way I'd be able to box if, if I didn't do that. But like, yeah, my step count's always really good. I'm consistently getting like, you know, between 10 and 11 or 10, 12,000 a day, plus my training, plus like the cardio that I get from boxing and all that stuff. So it's been going really well, but there's no freaking way I'd be able to do that. Not to mention like just the, like, have you ever been like 
crossing the street and then the light starts going red and then you got to jog the rest of the way and then you just yeah. try running when you're that heavy and your knees feel like they're just going to explode and your ankles and Achilles tendon feel like they're just going to rupture. Like that was what it was for like years. And it was terrible. You try to explain that to someone where you got to do like the Valsalva maneuver for, just to put on your shoes. And I was like, they don't get it. <laughs> I was like, man, that's yeah. way too much stuff. It's, it's funny because I think a lot of the people, especially on the internet that are at least uh, in conversation uh, play the devil's advocate of, you know, the dreamer bulk or the super bulk or the dirty bulk. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people that support that sort of thing, when you look at who they actually are, they're just not very big. Uh, and you're like, well, I can tell you why you're a fan of this because you're small. <laughs> Once you get big, you realize that if I can get bigger without getting much fatter, it's going to just save me everything that, that I want. I don't want any of that shit. Um, the dream rock's very easy as like you look at it from the bottom of the mountain, you go, oh, yeah, that looks like it's fun up there. At the top of the mountain, snow and ice and rarefied air, and, you know, you're in deep shit if something goes wrong. So that's kind of the thing with, with getting really, really big. It seems really cool. You actually try to do it. You get really big and really fat, and you're like, man, this fat stuff just totally blows. So, um, yeah, funny enough, my neck now, my traps and my shoulders have gotten so big that if I do high reps on pull downs at the top, my um, front delts hit my neck and actually do like a carotid choke. So I start to black out. I never thought that would be a problem. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So if you want to save yourself 10 trillion other versions of that, get as not fat as possible. Here's another quick, quick, quick thing there, you know, on the, on the other side of this and um, you know, folks like uh, Eric Trexler, they're very big on this. And they make a, a very great point that the whole paranoia, like as soon as you get above 20%, you just turn into a fat slob and you don't gain any muscle and you may even lose some. Like that's all probably bullshit. Uh, and they made a very good uh, effort to sort of convey that. I think that was really awesome. Um, and they also made a very good effort, as far as I could tell, to get people away from like justifying mini cuts via their like kind of insane, probably clinical grade body dysmorphia or fat phobia. Like, all right, I'm at 11% mini cut time (laughs) for sure. And those are all valid. But on the other end, you know, if you're at 15% fat and you're thinking, should I go to 20 or should I mini cut? The thing is the mini cut, you can do it for like six weeks. And in six weeks, you can legitimately lose three to 4% body fat with no long-term muscle loss at all. That takes you back down to like 12, 11% body fat and buys you 12 to 16 weeks more of slow massing just at a cost of six weeks. Is that really that bad? Because people, I said sometimes, and, and I don't think Eric Trexler has, has done this, but I think folks that are using his excellent insight, taking it a bit further than I think he would have intended, will be like, yeah, don't mini cut. Mini cutting stupid, just fucking gain. And it's like mini cutting for stupid reasons is stupid. But if a mini cut costs you only six weeks and saves you all these terrible things and keeps your physique looking wonderful, and it's literally only just six weeks, and then you just get just as jacked, but like half as fat. Gee whiz, that's a very low cost. You know, if you're mini cutting every three weeks because you're paranoid, that's bad. If you're mini cutting every four months and that keeps you between 10 and 15% fat and lets you get long-term gains with excellent health, excellent training performance uh, and excellent momentum and everything, seems to me like it's a really good idea. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, so w- what would you kind of expect the range to be like for, for going on like a, let's say a bulking phase. So, you know, someone starts off, let's say somewhere between 10 and, or like, yeah, like maybe 12% body fat. And they're doing, I don't know, like a 12 or 16 week kind of massing phase, whatever that looks like. Uh, what, what would that ratio be of like, once you kind of gain this much body fat or, or kind of, how do you structure that? Like how much would you anticipate they should gain as a reasonable amount in a properly constructed massing phase relative to like the overall body weight that they, that they gained. I have to play out some numbers here. I'm not going to share my screen, but I'm going to do a bit of Excel real, real ghetto Excel. So what you said, we start at a 12% body fat, right? That was your example. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, let me run a few quick numbers and see if Excel fills in the blanks for me. Hey, and it did. 
So let's see how many we have here. Okay. So if you gain, you start at 12% body fat and you gain at a pace that, you know, so our recommendation for mass gaining is to gain at between 0.25 and 0.5% of your body weight per week. If you gain at 0.25% per week, then the journey from 12% to 12.25, 12.5, 12.75, et cetera, all the way to 15 takes 13 weeks. Right? And that assumes that you gain only fat. So if you were to gain only fat, going from 12% to 15% body fat, that mass phase would last 13 weeks. Here's a cool thing. You probably won't gain only fat, hopefully. So then you don't even have to make any assumptions about how much you'll gain. What you can do is just plan a 13-week phase, gaining at whatever 0.25% or uh, yeah, 0.25% per week. After 13 weeks, you may realize that you are like still like at 14 or 13% fat. And you're like, holy shit, I gained plenty of muscle. And then you can decide, well, I'm going to keep going, or I'm just going to mini cap back down to 12 to 10 and just do the whole thing over again. So I would say where I, I don't like to see folks go is to start making estimates of what fractions of their shit is going to be muscle and fat, and especially getting down the wormhole of like real hopeful ideas. Like, oh, I should at least easily gain half muscle and half fat, which for an advanced person is almost never going to happen. For a beginner, it could happen. So what I would say is just run your numbers, assuming you'll gain only fat, put your boundaries on your mass gain with only fat, and then you'll be super pleasantly surprised and you'll have a plethora of really good choices um, as opposed to assuming you're going to gain a shitload of muscle, going way too aggressively. And after six weeks, you're like, oh shit, I'm already too fat. <laughs> so I would, I would go from the other end, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And that, that's kind of an interesting way of looking at it as well, actually. So um, in terms of actual body fat percentage and, and long-term health effects, you kind of alluded to it uh, a little bit earlier. What, what are some of those issues that you kind of run into once you start getting up beyond a certain point? Yeah. So you run into some insulin resistance with a higher body fat level. You will also run into incrementally poor hormonal profiles. For example, your good cholesterol will tend to decline. Your bad cholesterol will tend to go up. Your triglycerides will tend to go up. Um, your liver values can experience not so great things the more body fat you add, and you can also cause a higher inflammatory environment in your entire body. Higher body fat levels are associated with and probably, well, there's enough mechanism now, mechanism research to say it's probably causative, at least in part, that higher body fat levels actually cause higher systemic inflammation. And it may, may be in a nasty positive feedback loop there um, where higher systemic inflammation may also make you slightly more likely to gain more body fat, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I mentioned insulin resistance, didn't I? Yeah. And um, in general, being of a higher weight, and in this case, if you're too fat, it's sort of needlessly high, um, increases your chances of, uh, well, sorry, it increases the stress on all of your organs or the demand on all of your organs, which is not great. Um, and probably, I don't think I said this yet, blood pressure is probably the, the worst of all those things. And again, blood pressure scales with body fat. And I, I think we're um, dealing with a situation here where you know, if you're drug-free and you're young, a lot of these increases can be what we would call subclinical. Like you come into the doctor, 22% body fat, you're fine. The doctor's like, yeah, you're fine. Now compared to other people your age that are of a lower body fat, you're still in the fine range, but you're at the higher end of the range and they're at the lower end of the range. And since health sort of factors into longevity as an integrated function, basically like the longer you're healthier, the longer you are alive. And also the longer you're healthier, the longer you continue to be healthier. If you're less healthy for some time, probably reduces your longevity and probably reduces your what's called health span, how long you're healthy for. So I, I, I really don't like to see folks that are 21 years old, already at 20% body fat, genetically very capable of being much leaner. They're like, fuck it. I'm going to go up to 25 because hashtag gains. They see the doctor regularly. The blood work is fine. And they say, see, it doesn't fucking matter, bro. Well, you could have had much better blood work that entire time. 
much better body responses, much better body health. And then as opposed to at age 35, you getting the news that, look, you can't keep doing this. You got to lose weight because now you're in bad health. That news may occur at age 45 or never. And then you don't have to worry about it because you've been proactive at being as healthy as you could reasonably possibly be the entire time. So yes, if you are drug-free and if you are young and if you're relatively active, no, being between 20 and 25% body fat is not going to fucking kill you, at least approximately. But based on the benefits you accrue from it, which is just to say no more benefits than you would going from 10 to 15% or 15 to 20, you're just too fucking lazy to do a mini cut or a regular cut to renorm your body fat. The costs are there. They are systemic costs. They are cumulative costs. You will pay them eventually. A similar line of reasoning and research exists. I'm sure you've seen this before. Um, cause you're, you're, you really know your shit as far as like health and body fat and stuff. Um, there are some data that came out a few years ago that said, what looks like, um, slightly fatter people are healthier than normal weight people. And that there's this group of metabolically normal obese people that seem to be fine. So obesity is not bad for everyone. Well, it turns out a few folks thought that was probably bullshit. And they did a couple of really good follow-up studies where they remembered sort of from medical records, who those healthy obese people were. They followed up with them years later. It turns out if you were healthy and not obese, you were probably healthy five years later. If you were healthy and obese, five years later, you're probably really unhealthy or much more unhealthy. Nothing really changed. It's just the obesity finally caught up to you in a sense, or it was really exacting its toll the entire time, except it was subclinical. So what I would say is staying relatively, relatively, reasonably as lean as you can is probably a better idea than the opposite of being like, fuck it, I'm healthy, I'm young, let's get fat. Mind you. Uh, that's what I did. <laughs> I was like probably 30% body fat at 270 at five, six when I was drug free. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I got my blood work done all the fucking time and almost never was it remotely bad. Did I cut years off my life doing that shit? Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, I did. Yeah. It's probably five years off my life at the tail end. I was stupid. And did it get me super jacked? No, it just got me super fat. Uh, could I have gotten just as jacked, but stayed leaner? Yes. <laughs> so I think that's what I have to say about that. Yeah. And it's funny because like a lot of those things sometimes are like a little bit hard to quantify, right? Like how do you quantify the potentiality of, of losing years or quality of life down the road? Like it's really not something you can do, but then at the same time, it's very much something that's just sort of common sense. Like, you know, where, where it's like, okay, sure. We don't have a fucking RCT on this or whatever, any longitudinal data, but like get fucked. Like, come on, we, we, we don't need that. Like, when, when I was hearing a lot of the metabolic stuff around obesity, I was like, I'm pretty skeptical. I'm just not going to talk about this for the time being, see how this pans out. Because it was just like, I don't, yeah, I just don't buy the whole like metabolically healthy stuff. It's like metabolically healthy. Like what, what is that? And like when, when you, it was funny. Cause like when I actually read that and how they quantified metabolically healthy, it was like, oh, this isn't healthy at all. You know what I mean? Like, fine. You're okay. You're not going to die today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, that is not the same as being like fit, athletic, all this other stuff. And so, you know, not trying to knock on anyone, but it just, it's like a lot of this stuff is really sort of common sense. And the fact that people will just kind of hide behind the fact that there's no data, it's like, it's kind of, what, what is that called when you create like, um, I can't remember. It's like a logical fallacy where you hide behind like something that can't be argued. It's like, prove to me that God doesn't exist. And it's like, well, I can't, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. Sure. I can't. Yeah, there's a few variations on that theme. Yeah. But, but it's, it's kind of, I see a lot of these things as kind of something like that where it's like, okay. Appeal to ignorance maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I see, I see a lot of that stuff kind of happening, but, um, but yeah. So can you go into a little bit about like what kind of changes, like you, you mentioned there's changes in insulin sensitivity and, and your hormones change. How does that act? Sorry. How does that impact, um, I guess, things on a more practical sense. Like I know you've talked about um, like appetite regulation, how that might be impacted by, by body fat percentages. Can you kind of go into that a little bit? Yeah. Well, so um, gee, it depends on how fat you get and how long you've been fat, because if you've been fat for a short time and it's the fattest you've ever been, the regulation goes in your favor and it makes the appetite very, very low and to a large extent prevents you or makes it more difficult for you to get fatter. If you're fat for longer, then eventually you can get into appetite dysregulation where your body doesn't register food coming in as like as profoundly as it used to. And then it sort of tells you, Hey, you need to keep eating. And even though you're already over fat. So it, a lot of times will fuck your appetite up in the opposite direction. 
for lifters, it's probably not going to happen. And that you need to earn that shit. Years of sedentary lifestyle and very bad blood work to get to where you're fat, but you're still ultra hungry. Um, and a lot of times people who lose some weight from being fat and ultra hungry, their appetite dysregulation goes away and they hit this, like, it's actually a very cool experience to have, uh, luckily a lucky experience to have, let's say 300 pounds, very out of shape. And it's very difficult to get down to 270 because you're hungry all the time. Once your appetite starts to regulate normally again, or more normally at 270, you may be like, wow, getting 270 is hard. And now I'm just losing weight all the fucking time. I'm like 263. I don't want to eat food anymore because you're more healthy. I wouldn't say that that's something that occurs with lifters as much. With lifters, I think there's a benefit. Uh, generally, for most lifters, as they gain body fat, their appetite is going to be impacted very, very highly in the direction of difficult to eat food. Bad news, it'll stop you from, um, it'll make it difficult for you to continue to gain. Good news, you shouldn't be gaining, goddammit, you should be losing. <laughs> so if you lose plenty of fat, get a leaner again, the good news is your appetite goes back up and it allows for two things. One, for you to more easily gain weight and thus muscle on your ride back up. And also um, psychologically more pleasant and enjoyable. You know, like you're going to be eating tons of pasta and rice and chicken and fish and steak. And that all tastes great. When you're on a diet, you can't, you're fantasized about that shit. You're on a tail end of a mass phase and you're fat. You can't stand the sight of it. And if you just do like a mini cut, a regular cut, get lean again, you'll be gaining the same amount of muscle fractionally week to week to week as you were when you're fatter, at least the same. And uh, you'll be feeling better in every different, every possible way. And you're going to be day to day enjoying your food more than you were if you were just trying to stuff yourself because you're already too fat. Are there any um, differences in terms of like resiliency in terms of how people, how fast people can maybe cut or bounce back or ex how resistant people are to maybe experiencing some of these um, negative outcomes um, outside of just purely genetics, but let's say things like training age, um, actual biological age, sex, uh, things like that. Not familiar with sex. In general, I've never had, but um, <laughs> uh, I've read about it in the picture books. Um, they're not for children, those books. So, um, yeah, sex, I'm not sure. Um, Generally speaking, the older you get, the worse shit works. So I sure as fuck wouldn't push my body fat very high when I was older. Uh, when you're older, it's time to stay leaner most of the time. And then training age, I would say that it gets harder to gain. But again, the gain process from 10 to 15% is rather similar than the gain process from 15 to 20% fat. It's just the 15 to 20 comes with all sorts of downsides. So I think a lot of people say, well, fuck, man, you know, I got... You know, from 10 to 15% fat, I gained a little bit of muscle, but I'm very advanced. So when I really gain muscle, I need to go in again from 15 to 20%. Well, hold on a second. Or you could just mini cut, a regular cut, back down to 10 and go back up to 15. It's been very, very, very well illustrated through a, a lot of just um, insight from athletes and coaches, and actually quite a bit of former research as well, that if you, if you just don't fuck up really bad, it's really difficult to lose muscle, especially in a way that you need to gain it back for long-term to get it back to normal in anything like a normal diet. If you just continue to resistance train, which is a fucking no-brainer, continue to have a good diet of high protein, you're just not really going to lose any muscle going from 15% to 10% body fat in most cases. So when people say, oh man, like I'm really advanced, I think I need to go up to 20% fat in order to gain any muscle, or you mini cut and go, just go from 10 to 15 again. I'll tell you this. If you're going from 10 to 15%, and you know, if we like look back at that little 0.25 per week little simulation there, I mean, that's at least like a 16 week mass phase. If you can't gain an appreciable amount of muscle in 16 week mass phase, just hang it up. Just fucking hang it up. The, 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 the correct answer is not, well, I just need to keep going and get to 20% fat. There are no pretty flowers to pick on, on that end of the bridge, I promise. As if, if, if there's all dried up and wilted flowers on your end at 15%, you don't, don't cross the bridge to 20. There are no flowers there, just even more tundra and cold. Uh, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it, it seems like, fuck, like I can't gain a whole lot of muscle anymore. Uh, what else do I got? Right. What else do I have in the clip to fire off? And if, you know, like you're shooting really great rounds from 10 to 15%, and then you're like, oh, well, I have these smaller, shittier rounds from 15 to 20%. I could shoot those, even though the target seems resilient to the, the harder rounds. 
yeah, sure. Or you can reload the clip and fire more of the good rounds, which is to say, go back down to 10% and try it again to go to 15. Uh, and I can understand where that concern comes from to try to keep going and get really big because you will experience leverage-based strength increases. You will linearly continue to get stronger. Mini cutting disrupts that. You get your swag back within a few weeks, but it can be awkward. So it's tempting to keep going, but in many cases, maybe dare I say most, it's probably unwise. Yeah, that was a kind of a psychological barrier for me as well. Was like as I was losing weight, there were certain things like the the squat, the bench press. I definitely noticed a huge difference. Like I couldn't kind of press on my lats with my triceps as much, or my stomach wasn't pressing on my thighs, my my hamstrings. I've got pretty big quads like that's kind of like pretty big legs in general that's sort of like what my biggest strength is and so like i hit the bottom and i'm just below parallel but my hamstrings are already pressing on my on my calves and so it kind of shoots me back up and so i definitely noticed that and that was a huge like psychological thing that i just had to be okay with when when i started losing weight and now i'm stronger than i was with those enhanced leverages, which only means that if I get back to that big, but I'm lean, it'll be much better. You'll be psycho strong for sure. Yeah. But man, it just, yeah. Sometimes just just take like a lot of emotional maturity, you know? (laughs) Yes. So just like, that's a great way to put it and be like, man, this process might take like a year or two years or whatever it might be for me. It's probably going to take a year to get to the level of body fat that I want before I'm able to go back up, which seems like a lot longer than I had in mind when, um, when I started doing it, but that's also cause like I take very, very, very minimal uh, amounts of drugs. Like I take literally a TRT dose. I know what everyone says that, but I actually do. I don't say that. <laughs> that's not me. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. If but like, I know a lot of people are like, Oh yeah, yeah, just take a little bit. It's like, no, sure. I buy like a yeah. bottle of testosterone that lasts me like months. Right. So yeah. everyone's um, always on just TRT as far as, yeah, I, as far yeah, as yeah, anyone's yeah. concerned. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, and, and so I, you know, I, that's not going to really boost my, my physique all that much, but, uh, but even still, so I'm finally kind of, I think in the next like four months or so, I'll kind of get to a point where, where I actually feel pretty good about my physique. And then I can kind of chill there for a little while, just sort of establish like a good baseline and then just really ramp up my metabolism at that weight. And then eventually start going up again. Um, but yeah, well, that was actually pretty much all the, the questions that I had for you. Was there anything else maybe that I, uh, that I didn't cover that you kind of want to uh, just make a point on? Uh, it, it, nothing in the in the weed of the physiology. I think we did a pretty good job there. I'm, I'm sure we can always, you know, talk again and more questions arise. But I will say that uh, I think I think you really you really put the exclamation mark on this talk with the point of emotional maturity. And um, there's kind of two ways to go about generally two ways to go about decisions. Um, one genesis point of a decision could be basically like like uh uh. uh I have a lot of emotions and I want all these things, but they're not happening. Uh, and you freak out and you just sort of reach for the thing. Right. Um, it, it's like, you know, if, if you're flying on an airplane, you know, not by yourself, you know, as a passenger airliner and there's like some kind of like blue smoke coming out of the bathroom is the equivalent to like trying to open the cockpit door. <laughs> like it's just trying to open the fucking door to the outside. Like, yes, I know blue gas, probably bad, but all out there only death. So maybe don't do things less of that kind of decision-making and more of an attempt to be calm and rational weigh costs and benefits and be like, you know, what's really my best bet here long-term because I'm not interested in getting like a little bit jacked in a few months. I'm interested in getting ultra fucking mega jacked in a few years. What, what are my best chess moves to go there um, and make that happen? And, and, you know, luckily you don't have to make a decision very quickly. Like if there's blue gas coming out of the bathroom on an airplane, you may be like, okay, based on the rough velocity of this gas expansion, I have like five seconds to make a decision about what the fuck I'm going to do. Luckily in bodybuilding, Jesus Christ, we have days and weeks and months to make a good decision, at least days and weeks. So you can really do a good job with, as you said, lots of emotional maturity. I think, you know, what would a wise person who really is very worldly, what would they do? What would they recommend? Uh, would they recommend like a fast, stupid trigger pull? Like, yes, do this. Ah, probably not. And the number of people, including myself, that make those kinds of fast trigger pull decisions and then talk about them on social media is obscene. Tons of people. So I think all of us can get better by just being a little calmer, a little cooler, and asking ourselves to think, you know, what um, economist and philosopher Thomas Sowell has described as thinking beyond stage one. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Stage one is like, what will this do? Stage two is what will that affect as far as other things down the line? 
if you can th think a little bit beyond stage one, think a little bit less irrationally and sort of emotively, like, oh, fuck, 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 I had to make a decision, um, especially about something that's so long and tedious. I mean, like the, the blue gas airplane example, like your decision amounts to being either I sit in my seat or I try to go to the front of the cockpit to like buy some time or I just open the fucking door and jump out, right? Those are fast decisions, whereas the process is fast, uh, the decisions may be concomitantly also fast, then the process of bodybuilding takes at least weeks and definitely months and years why you would ever come up with a decision to do something that took you five seconds to think of and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, just super bulk, super bulk, yeah, cookies, buy the pizza. Like, fuck, man, you know, you're going to do something for a long time. You might as well think it through. Like, I, I promise, you know, when, you know, SpaceX, they're building rockets, they're probably not like coming up with rocket decisions on like, oh, which engine to use, like in a matter of 30 seconds. They probably take a long time to think about that. So it's very important. And it's going to unfold over years. It's important to put in the time. Yeah, and especially if a decision that you make on the fly is anxiolytic in nature, like it like reduces your anxiety, that's probably a good indication that it's not really well thought out and it's much more <laughs> yes. on emotion than it is like critically evaluating everything like in a good headspace. Because I certainly know that that's how I have like an inclination to make decisions. And it's like literally I'll have to sit there and be like, oh, yeah, this is me trying to do stupid shit again. Okay, let's just take a little bit of a, of a break from this, not making any decisions right now, wait till I'm well-rested, well-fed, all that stuff. And then, and then we'll kind of revisit it. And, yeah. uh, if you have to make a decision to relieve anxiety, uh, then you have to understand that what you really want is an, a relief in anxiety. And you can get that just by watching your breath for a few minutes and uh, doing some meditation. And then once you have that lower anxiety, then you can say, okay, maybe I'm not ready to make a decision. Or not even, you could just table it for the fucking next day. A lot of times people, and it, interestingly enough, and I'm sure this is a bit amplified on social media, the way people even ask questions sometimes is like, guys, I'm in a real bind. What should I do? <laughs> Tell me now. And it's like, geez, you know, like you can at least maintain for the next infinity amount of days and go nowhere with your physique while not losing anything. Like a holding pattern is a very real thing in bodybuilding. We just kind of chill and hold and think yeah. of shit. And the idea that I have to make this decision now, like, yeah, like I understand if the Olympics are tomorrow, <laughs> sure. You might have to make some decisions ASAP. Like if you're water cutting for a bodybuilding show, like, okay, should I have this 18 ounce cup of water? Like my coach told me, or because I'm not thirsty and I'm not super dry yet. Should I just not have it? Yeah. Okay. That decision needs to be made probably in the next 30 minutes. Call your coach, try to think it through. But on stuff like how high should I mass up body fat wise? Fucking Christ. Take your time. No big deal. No, no reason to be freaking out about it. Yeah, no, hundred percent. That, that's a great point. Um, <coughs> well, yeah, man, I, I appreciate you jumping on. That was, uh, that was awesome. I know we're kind of running out of time here. Um, where can people find you? I used to have this whole spiel, but now I just say YouTube. Just uh, type in my name in YouTube and you will see the Renaissance Periodization YouTube channel. We're always releasing uh, four to five videos per week. They're always informative and sometimes even entertaining. And if you like men that are mostly nude, lifting weights, gee whiz, you'll love our channel. So uh, yeah, that would be probably a good place to find us. And if you're interested in products and services, just click on the video's description and there's all kinds of links to go all kinds of places. Awesome. So make sure you check that out. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and the Instagram and all that jazz. All that's going to be linked up in the show notes. Mike, thanks so much for jumping on, man. Daniel, thanks so much for having me. Always, always pleasant to chat with you.